0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Indeed, I can remember how badly David Cameron's speech went when he suggested that leaving would lead ultimately to some kind of conflict.
2: Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, acting editor of CapEx. For the second of this week's installments, I was fortunate enough to speak to one of the world's most eminent historians, Professor Neil Ferguson. Neil is currently a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and at the Centre for European Studies at Harvard, where he taught for 12 years. He's also the author of some 15 books and a regular columnist in newspapers such as the Sunday Times and the Wall Street Journal. I sat down with Neil to discuss the future of Europe, Brexit, and his old Oxford contemporary, Boris Johnson. Neil, welcome to Free Exchange. Thanks very much for being with us. Pleasure to Um, be here. I mean, are you glad that you've become an American citizen when you look at what's happening in the UK at the moment?
1: I think if you'd told me in 1984, when I first met Boris Johnson at Oxford, that he was going to be Prime Minister in 2019... I would have said, in that case, I'm emigrating to the United States. So I, I got my retaliation in first. I became a, an American citizen last year, and I certainly don't regret it. Of course, you are able to be a dual citizen, which is one of the best hedges in the world right now. So I am still a, a British subject uh, of Her Majesty the Queen, and I'm glad to say that these are, are indeed compatible statuses.
2: I mean, much is made of uh, this being a crisis in in British politics. I mean, do you see any useful parallels between what we're going through at the moment and previous periods in history, not necessarily in the UK, but anywhere?
1: I was reminded uh, of Norman Stone's book, Europe Transformed, by the sad news of, of his death last week. And... I went back and refreshed my memory as I had read it when I was an undergraduate. One of the arguments Norman made in that book is that liberalism in its mid-19th century uh, variant did indeed suffer death, a strange death in the late 19th century in in Europe as well as in the United Kingdom and it's sort of happened again that the, the center ground, which was liberal in the standard sense of the term, Christian democracy and social democracy, is crumbling everywhere. As in the late 19th century, populists are challenging liberal verities, including free trade. Hence, tariffs are suddenly back in the news, just as they were in the late nineteenth century, so I think it's worth in trying to understand the politics of the moment, going back to Norman and and rereading Europe Transformed, and realizing that we are in one of those phases. One might call it a phase of of, of backlash against globalization, when the costs of liberalism, of free trade, of free migration, uh, suddenly seem to to be outweighed by. Uh, or suddenly seem to outweigh rather the benefits, and I think it's not a bad analogy. It's a better analogy than the 1930s, which people constantly bring up uh, as if there's some resemblance between uh, Donald Trump and, and Mussolini or Hitler. That's just a silly and unhelpful analogy. I think it's much more illuminating to look at fantasy siècle politics.
2: I mean, what speaking of uh,
1: sort of historical
2: parallels? I mean, what what do you make of the sort of Hard Brexiteers,
1: a version of history that seems to see,
2: they seem obsessed with the Second World War, particularly.
1: It's often complained, I, I see this in the New York Times, that, that Brexit re- represents a kind of incurable British or perhaps English nostalgia for the days of empire or for the, the world wars. And I'm not sure I see that in the British electorate. In fact, I'm struck when I talk to people in pubs, which I have a habit of doing, how little those historical allusions really come up. This is, from the vantage point of the the average voter, not that freighted with, with history. It's just a few conservative politicians who can't resist bringing up the Battle of Britain or whatever event appears most appropriate. Boris Johnson's persona is a kind of Monty Python version of Winston Churchill. He even wrote a bad book about Churchill to encourage people to see him as, in some sense, uh, a latter-day Churchill. And I, I expect there will be much talk of the the 1940 spirit as we approach October the 31st but I I just don't think this stuff resonates Uh, and indeed I think it's counterproductive because it just makes the continental Europeans in particular sigh and and raise their eyebrows and the Americans think that we are just chronically uh, stuck in the past whereas I don't think ordinary people are. I think this is a kind of this is a real relic of, of the age of Dad's army, the kind of sitcoms that I imagine Boris watching at Eton. I mean, you mentioned Churchill there. I mean, it's, it's been a while
2: since we had a prime minister like him who was steeped in British history. He really knew their stuff. I mean, do you think that's something lacking in our political class? I never thought class?
1: Boris knew his stuff. He always struck me at Oxford as somebody who was winging it on the basis of fairly hasty um, reading. So I'm not sure he's steeped in, in history, certainly not oh, on no the Churchill, basis of his. Not Boris. Oh yeah. <laughs> God, for a minute I thought you meant Boris. Yeah. Churchill's a wonderful example of of what I think of as applied history, because the whole of Churchill's career was based on a series of historical insights. He was somebody who went back and forth between writing history and making it in a way that's very rare. Rereading his life through the eyes of Andrew Robertson, walking with destiny, his excellent new biography, I was constantly struck by how important historical analogies were for Churchill. This is partly ancestor worship because he loved to look back on his on his famous uh, ancestor uh, Marlborough. But it, it's actually more than that. There's there's a depth to Churchill's understanding of Britain's relationship to to Europe in particular that helps explain why he was prepared to go into the political wilderness uh, in the way that he did in the 1930s and stick with his critique of appeasement when it was completely unpopular and seemed to consign him to political oblivion. So it's worth, I think, reflecting on how Churchill would have thought about Brexit. He ...envisaged after the war, Britain in a, a kind of dual role... ...maintaining the empire, but playing a part in, in a process of unification of Europe... ...designed to avert future conflict. In In that sense, I think Britain was to continue playing the balancing role that it had played... ...but to use some kind of union of Europe to avert the need for regular conflict... I'm not convinced that Churchill would have approved of Brexit since it amounts to uh, a leap in the dark to think that Britain can simply exit the European Union and then hope for a bunch of free trade agreements, including with the United States, to to turn up at a time when the mood of the world is distinctly turning away from, from free trade. This doesn't feel like a particularly good strategy with any great basis in British history, the point about the phrase "splendid isolation" when it was used was that it was an ironical one. It's not particularly a good idea to be isolated if you're uh, an island economy off the Eurasian landmass. So I I really struggle with people who who bring Churchill up in these in these discussions. I I, I wish we could somehow. Uh, get out our uh, our séance equipment and, and, and get some kind of guidance from the great man on on what to do. My sense is that he would not see this in the terms of, of the hard Brexit lobby. It seems to,
2: it's almost a cultural meme that's got nothing to do with him as a historical personality. He's just become a byword for belligerence and you know, a stiff upper lip and all this kind of...
1: Right, and, and so part of the problem is that we've slightly forgotten what the point of Churchill was. And this attempt to create a, a situation in which Britain was simultaneously still a global power played a part in Europe and established some extraordinarily close relationship with the United States. This was a very clever solution to the problem that Britain faced early in Churchill's career, which was that it really couldn't sustain its, its power simply as an empire. So I, I come back to Churchill uh, often in, in arguing that we need to apply history when we're thinking about problems and not enough, well, frankly, hardly any statesman do that. Unfortunately, relatively few historians help them. A lot of historians uh, don't write books or articles that are helpful to policymakers.
0: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. It's fair to say that in the 2016 debate, when I was on the Remain side, we tried and I think failed to make historical arguments for remaining uh, in the EU. Indeed, I can remember how badly David Cameron's speech went when he suggested that leaving would lead ultimately to some kind of conflict because after all it had been really Britain's detachment from the continent prior to 1914 and its appeasement policy in the 1930s that had led to the wars that sort of argument and that really failed it was ridiculed in the press and it didn't resonate with the public and that taught me that you you have to be careful if you're going to apply history you have to do it in a way that that's credible And I don't think either side in the debate over Brexit did that.
2: Do you think there was also a quite contestable claim about the EU being the guarantor of peace, especially given we didn't join it until the early 70s?
1: That that argument has always been the weakest one that the pro-Europeans make, and it's a silly argument because the one thing that, that didn't happen was the creation of a... European Defence Union it was that 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 was the thing that didn't take place and and Europe integrated in every other respect leaving NATO to do the hard work of protecting Western Europe from the Soviet threat NATO's the key to that uh, story of peace in Europe uh, not the EU and even when the EU tried to play a peacemaking role in the Balkans you will remember uh, in the 1990s it abjectly failed the hour of Europe came and then it went and it had to be sorted out by the United States. So I think uh, there are some pretty poor arguments on both sides uh, involving what really is sort of fake history. I mean, ultimately, it feels like you have
2: them um, For a lot of voters, it's just an emotional response anyway, and then you, you, after that, you fit
1: the facts around what you want. I think in the new politics of the internet age, it's got harder to have political debates in which arguments are supported by facts, and if you flunk the facts uh, in an interview with Robin Day on primetime television, you're in big trouble. That, that's gone, because now I think the arguments are much more like internet memes, and you can be quite clearly wrong about something, and it doesn't matter, because a big, big part of the electorate in a confirmation uh, bias-based bubble in which they can just filter out the bad news that their preferred candidate is making it up. Does that worry you as a historian who, who, you know, whose business is facts and interpretations of the past? And... Of course. I, my most recent book, The Square and the Tower, is about the strangeness of our new public sphere, which has changed much more than most people realise... I think members of the educated elite still feel essentially that newspapers matter and BBC talk shows matter in the way that they did in the 1980s and before. But they really matter much, much less because of the way that the network platforms determine what people read as news, whether it's uh, Facebook's news feed or, or some other platform... I think we tend to underestimate the extent to which there has been a radical segmentation of the public sphere. And I see this periodically whenever I uh, make any comments about Brexit because there's a kind of certain Twitter account that will just heap opprobrium on me for being insufficiently uh, bullish about the prospects of, of, of Boris Johnson. And they're very similar in tone to the same accounts that will jump on top of you if you make a negative comment about Trump. Or uh, and, and exactly, actually, the, in some ways the Labour Party under Corbyn has been, been superior at the social media game to the Tories. Uh, Corbyn has way more followers than Boris, I mean, 2 million to something like 800,000. So yeah, it's both sides. And, and the populists of the left and the populists of the right have discovered that you can say things that are untrue if you say them with sufficient ferocity. Your your supporters will will be excited and engaged and, and, will, and will cheer you on. So this is a very different world from the world, certainly the world in which we debated joining the European uh, uh, economic community. And when you look over your lifetime at the way the EU
2: or the EU, European community and then the EU has... has developed. I mean, it's fair to say you're not bullish about the future of the EU, isn't it? it?
1: No, I I was a, a Remainer not out of great love for the European Union. I don't wake up whistling the ode to joy. On the contrary, I was very critical about the way that the the Europeans embarked on monetary union without thinking through its implications. And all the criticisms of those days back in the in the 90s were validated by what happened in the financial crisis. The exact point that I made with Larry Kockoff back in, when was it, 2000, that if you had a monetary union without any kind of fiscal integration with limited labor mobility, it would be incredibly vulnerable to a public um, financial problems and and be any kind of shock. So I was um, a sceptic, thought of as a Eurosceptic because I was so opposed to the Monetary Union and certainly to Britain joining it. But when it came to Britain leaving the European Union, I felt that that was something that was extraordinarily difficult to pull off. My position was just, do we really have the competence to do such a difficult thing? And is it worth it? Uh, I mean, the, Argument: the analogy I made before the referendum was that it was like a divorce and it was going to take a lot longer and cost a lot more than we were told. I remember being really infuriated by Daniel Hannan's book, which I remember reading when I was trying to decide exactly where to go. And it was just so wrong. It was just so badly done. It was just so full of holes. The whole argument about how easily Brexit could be done, that I became angry. I felt if, if this were a paper by a graduate student at Harvard, I'd, I'd give it a failing grade. And then I looked at the, the arguments that the Brexiteers were making and realized that they were just deeply, deeply implausible. So my attitude was, I doubt very much if these people can deliver it. When the referendum went the way it did, my attitude became, well, uh, they voted for it. Now, now I guess you have to try and deliver it, but let's face it, three years on... It's actually been even worse than I would have foreseen in terms of execution. And I have absolutely no faith that Boris Johnson can, in a much smaller time frame, with a wafer-thin majority, do better than she did, Theresa May did, over over three years, starting off with a parliamentary majority.
2: In a sense, it doesn't even matter who became Prime Minister, does it? It's such an impossible...
1: It's nearly impossible to see a good outcome here because there's no chance, I think, of the Europeans changing their position or agreeing to any kind of change to the withdrawal agreement. Uh, So that's magical thinking. Uh, I don't think there's a way that Parliament is going to do a no-deal scenario uh, as Halloween approaches, so that's magical thinking. If it goes to an election... I suspect is more likely than another referendum. I don't see how the Tories survive as long as the Brexit Party exists, and unless Nigel Farage dissolves it and, and endorses Boris Johnson, the Tories will lose north of hundred seats. I mean, on one projection, two hundred. At which point, you have a Corbyn minority government, and uh, he'll have to agree to not just one referendum but two to put together a coalition with the the Lib Dems and the Scottish Nationalists. So you'll get another Brexit referendum despite Corbyn's own personal reservations. That's clearly the way his party's going. And you'll get another Scottish referendum. And if there's one person who could persuade Scots to back Nicola Sturgeon, it is Boris Johnson because he kind of sums up all that the Scots find annoying about the English elite. So I'm quite pessimistic about where this goes. And I've spent the last 10 days knocking around London, trying to get somebody on his side to tell me how this is going to be done, and to get past magical thinking, and they never do. You touched on it just then. I mean, are you how scared
2: are you um, that the union is going to break up, um, and
1: what are the consequences for Scotland? Well, I was on the anti-independent side of the 2014 referendum, and was pleased by the result but it was not exactly a resounding victory and I think that everything that has happened since then has tended to make matters worse for the union. Uh, the fact that the Scots didn't vote to leave of course is is, is not irrelevant but I think more generally that the spectacle of incompetence in Westminster just serves to erode the, the commitment of middle class scots to to the union i was up in my hometown glasgow last week conversing with some of my contemporaries uh, at glasgow academy the ones who didn't leave who stuck around and it's a broadly uh, anti-nationalist uh, middle class culture they were clearly against independence in 2014 but i heard repeatedly the worry expressed that that if anything was going to get Nicola Sturgeon over the line it would be the fiasco down south so yeah I think it's concerning I have a, another historical analogy which I like, I like to play with and this is a good way of, of, of getting off the subject of, of Boris Johnson I think if you, if you ask yourself what is our time most like what era do we most resemble, maybe it's not the late 19th century, maybe you have to go back further all the way to the 16th and 17th centuries when the printing press created a whole new environment for religious as well as political conflict. I think the internet has done something quite like that in our time. And one consequence of it is to weaken established hierarchies that happened in the 16th and 17th century, and it's happening now, uh, to allow fake news to spread very rapidly. It was witchcraft mania back then, and now it's fake news. Uh, to allow an extraordinary polarisation, a kind of violence of language that threatens to spill over into real violence, and above all to erode the sovereignty of states. And I think that's been one of the themes of recent years, which is partly why people are attracted to Brexit. If, if you live at a time when sovereignty is being dissolved by technology as much as by economics, you think, oh, if only we could build a wall or have a fence that was secure. You see it in the US. You see that as part of what I think is driving Brexit. And it's very, very hard to do that in a time such as this. So I see the Union as as under threat now in the same way that it was in the early 17th century when really the the relationships between England and Scotland and Ireland blew up uh, as part of a broader European crisis. To come back to something you said earlier, I think the future for the European Union itself is quite bleak and I still hold the view that in the end Brexit will be a footnote in a chapter about the breakup of the European Union. But these processes are quite hard to time, and I think there's a lot of inertia which will keep uh, the European Union going the way the Holy Roman Empire kept going. Uh, It might not go any uh, further in the direction of integration. I think it probably won't, but it won't quickly disintegrate. Uh, And so ultimately, you could argue, well, in that case... Brexit doesn't really matter. And I would say, exactly right, exactly right. So why waste all this time on a divorce from something that is in, in the end becoming weaker over time? And it's almost certain not to become a superstate. Remember, but the starting point for so much Euroscepticism was it's becoming a super-state. And at the time of Maastricht, at the time of monetary union, that wasn't an implausible thing to fear. But the lesson of the last 10 years is that it can't become a super-state. It just can't. The Germans aren't going to let there be a fiscal union. All of Macron's dreams of... Of more integration are, are already pretty much dead in the water. So, so why why worry? Why bother? It all seems like we've we've just wasted so much political capital on this on this divorce, and it, and we're divorcing uh, a slowly uh, decomposing spouse. How
2: do you see that decomposition taking shape? I mean, you said timing is a very difficult thing to work out. Um, is it? A country leaving or is it a generalized financial crisis brought on by this fiscal sort of incompatibility that you've talked about or is it a political crisis or is it a combination of all of them
1: it's none of the above okay uh the migration issue is the thing that's fatal because one country after another realizes that there will not be a european solution to that problem and therefore, so And I think even the Danes now, basically, have gone back to a uh, national border policy without electing populists. It's just that the mainstream parties have, have bowed to the popular pressure for a more restrictive policy. I think too much energy was spent analysing the European parliamentary elections. It's not the European Parliament that matters. It is the Council of Ministers... When the populists get to a blocking vote, and it only really takes a couple more countries for them to get pretty close, then I think the process will be at an end of of integration. And I I think it will become increasingly difficult for Europe to do anything very much. So I think you just have to watch the, the national politics as one country after another, mainly over the immigration issue, embraces something along the lines of Matteo Salvini's style or, or indeed Victor Orban's style of, of politics that's I think what will do for it and it won't be that anybody leaves because they've all realised by watching us that it's just far too much trouble and in any case who would want to risk Italian savers uh, uh, savings in, in euros becoming savings in new lira no, nobody wants to go there so the status quo is sort of fine as long as you can beat up on it the way Salvini and Orban do That, I think, is where Europe ends up, like the Holy Roman Empire, where Brussels actually can't make its writ run. And it will find it, I think, increasingly difficult to make its writ run with Italy. Salvini, I think, is going to play a game of chicken with the Commission about fiscal policy. And what is the Commission really going to do? Um, Unless the bond market decides to freak out, then Italy can get away with it. So that's where I see things going. And as a result, the European Union will become inexorably but, but imperceptibly weaker over time. And the whole notion of a European superstate will turn out to have been kind of a chimera. Do you see that as an unequivocally bad thing? I mean, if Europe returns
2: to a continent of more diffuse nation-states, that might be perhaps more innovative, more, less bureaucratic?
1: Well, certainly you can't give Europe high marks for... Uh, innovation over the last 30 years. Where are the big tech companies in Europe? There really aren't any. And that tells you that something wasn't working. If European integration had been successful, there would have been a huge market with a very highly educated population, the perfect conditions for there to be a major technological uh, scene here. And it just didn't happen. So, yeah, I I don't think one should weep uh, bitter tears as as the European Union becomes the Holy Roman Empire. But I think we should acknowledge that for this to happen at a time when uh, China and the United States are creating something like Cold War two is not really an ideal outcome, especially if you at the same time see NATO fall apart, because that's much more important in the end. If NATO turns out to be another moribund institution and at some point Article 5 is put to the test, say by the Russians and the Baltic states, um, then we'll really be in a mess, because then Europe will have lost not only the prospect of integration, but it will have lost the American security guarantee. And that that will make Europe uh, a very weak player. Henry Kissinger, whose life I'm in the midst of writing, said the other day, uh, I think very insightfully, that... If Europe continues on its present course, it will end up being an appendage of a Chinese dominated Eurasia, and the United States will be the offshore balancing power rather than an ally connected intimately to Western Europe. Planning for your next trip?